make sure today that you leave this place knowing that you are saved to the glory of God. Thanks. That one I'm going to choose. If you believe that, friends, you don't know the gospel. Is that the wonder of the cross is that no one gets injustice. If you, if you end up under the wrath of God, it is because you've rejected his provision for you and your justice is punished for your sin. I think to what the scriptures teach. I think the Bible does teach that God desires the salvation of all men, that he has provided uh, for uh, the, the salvation of all men. And therefore, anyone who, who ends up under the wrath of God, it is because they have rejected his provision for them and they are justly punished for their sins. The question that seeks to provide an answer to this question, for whose sins did Jesus die? The extent of the atonement asks the question, for whose sins did Jesus die? There are only two answers, two possible answers to that question. Either Jesus died for the sins of some people, or Jesus died for the sins of all people. All right, welcome to Making the Hedge. My name is Josh Gibbs. I'll be your host this evening. And the whole purpose of this uh, YouTube page is to provide uh, sort of a intermediary between um, those of us who may not get a chance to talk in person and to kind of put your views out there. Uh, in this case, it's gonna be myself and Nathan. Uh, he goes by Nate. Nate, welcome, good to have you. Thanks for thanks for having me on your show. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> so we are um, for this. The show is is basically in my heart. The reason why I wanted to put this show out there was just simply to give another uh, traditional perspective from uh, the Word of God as well as doctrine. Uh, there's a few guys out there who um, are holding the line when it comes to that uh, online. I think a couple of those would be Leighton Flowers and Kevin Thompson. Uh, not that this is anything comparable to what they are doing, uh, but I, I at least uh, want to have uh, a, a, another presence out there to represent the traditional side. I think that uh, predominantly uh, the internet and TV is pretty much in radio is saturated with uh, with another doctrine that uh, particularly a Calvinist doctrine that re would represent the Christian faith. Uh, that is not something that I believe represents the entire Christian faith. Uh, and this is obviously two sides of the spectrum. I would be a traditional perspective on the doctrinal side of that, as well as the textual side of the traditional view of Scripture. And then Nate would represent uh, the Calvinist or Reformed side of Christianity, as well as uh, the text critical or the critical um, text side of the preservation of Scripture. So you'll get to hear today my perspective on the tradi the traditional view for what uh, specifically is going to refer to what we would call textual variants uh, within the Greek text, and then Nate is going to represent uh, the critical view. So, Nate, I would like to, before we jump into the topic today, uh, just let our viewers get a little bit familiar with you, and uh, then okay. we'll, we'll just dive into it. So, I understand that you are in the Air Force, is that right? Yes, that is correct. And let me just preface by saying the views that I have are not the views of the United States Air Force. They're my own views. So just putting that disclaimer out there That's good. Um, to make that distinction. Yeah, I don't want to get you in trouble. So, hey, yeah. by the way, appreciate your service, man. I know this is a time when a lot of people uh, may not uh, stand with our troops. I think that that's something that we need to do. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you for your service. I really mean that. 
So, and it's much appreciated too. Now, how long have you served for? So uh, this August will be eight years. Eight years. Um, I'm currently uh, in Omaha okay. right now, so just I'm north of uh, Josh. Sweet, man. Yeah, I'm in Kansas City. You're in Omaha. I used to go up to Omaha. Uh, what's that place that is so famous? It's for, uh, like, it, there's a sandwich place that's just, it's specific to Omaha. It's like, ah, oh, I can't, man, see, now I just can't, I can't think of it. Um Oh, there's a lot of good sandwich places. I I consider myself a sandwich connoisseur, so I I yeah. I've been to quite a few of them. What is that, man? If I can think of it, I'll let you know. It'll come to me. Right now, I can't, but I will think of it. Obviously, you've got Omaha steaks up there too, but um, that's good. So, anyways, now uh, been in the Air Force for eight years. How long and what brought you to this side of studying the Bible from a, a textual critical? perspective and uh, I mean if is that in any way linked to uh, your journey into re the reformed theology how's that all connected so um, we spoke about this last night but um, I would basically I consider myself a nominal believer for most of my uh, life growing up if I was truly saved then I would say that most of my life was a maybe a period of severe backsliding but it was about um, three years ago when I really started taking the Christian faith seriously and um, knowing what I believe, knowing the history and just how to back it up and presuppositional apologetics and such. Uh, but when it came to the text of the Bible, um, I was formerly a, a King James onlyist, and I um, had got into that. Um, and I would say that there's uh, there's five different types of King James onlyists, and I I thank was the for, one that, the that way, I felt. Thank you for clarifying sorry? King James only, because I'd like to know. Uh, everybody's got a different definition of what King James only is, so I think it's important to kind of define what that term would mean. So and, there, yeah, there's so. five. There's there's the um, the King James version is my preferred, um, which I would say is is um, some some sides of my family. They're like I grew up with it. I know it. Um, there's the uh, textual argument. The King James Version is, is based on uh, better manuscripts. There's the uh, TR only, King James only, where it's the Textus Receptus, um, and that's all there is. Then there's um, the King James Version is inspired. And then the lastly is uh, the King James Version is a new revelation that supersedes the text from which it was translated. So I fell into what I would say was the, te uh, the textual argument. Um, and I, I felt that uh, the king, I, I looked at the Bibles I was reading, and I was like, oh, there's verses missing. What's with all these footnotes? And um, I didn't really have anyone challenge me on it until um, I had a friend that introduced me to um, who I would consider one of the leading scholars of our day, um, Daniel, Dr. Daniel Wallace. Uh, and he showed me his debate with Bart Ehrman uh, because I, I had heard about Bart Ehrman's book from some of my atheist friends who just said, he was a, a former New Testament scholar who's now, I think that he's gone full-blown atheist, but I've watched the debate between him, and that's what kind of piqued my interest in this. And ever since then, I kind of just taught myself like how to read some Greek and just I um, read it. There's a, a website called the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. It's Daniel Wallace's own ministry. He's gone around the world and taken high digital photographs. So... This is not, I don't consider my side an esoteric side at all because all these resources are available to anyone who would use them. And I, I hope to 
just lay that out on the table and just give facts for Christians to consider because we don't have to be afraid of these facts. So in that regard, that is probably somehow tied together when you went from King James only. Um, what side of King James only were you out of those five that you listed? Uh, I said that the te- number two, the uh, the, te- the textual argument, I'd say a little bit of number one, just I uh, I preferred it at the time, and I mm-hmm. just, that's what I stuck with. Okay. Um, so how did that, how are those two things uh, in, interrelated that, you went from King James only to uh, text critical um, text, or which obviously links to other versions and that kind of that kind of thing. But how is that interrelated to uh, Reformed theology? Because if you were King James only, you probably were not Reformed. I don't know. That's just something I would ask. I would um, got introduced to um, well, I kind of knew Calvinist theology growing up, and I always you know, made fun of it, but I didn't know a whole lot about it. I had friends that were, but I was like, I never really looked into it. Uh, it doesn't make sense to me. Um, but I had a friend that who I met through on Instagram, and he um, just uh, walked through some exegesis of some passages, and I just didn't, I didn't really, I had never, I had read these passages before, but I'd never seen it in that light, and it just jumped out to me, and I he, I, again, I got introduced to like the other side and just looked at it, and I would say that it was probably the end of 2016 that I became. Um, I, I was now I was a King James onlyist when I became what I would say uh, committed to the Reformed position, uh, but it was through discovering teachers in the Reformed uh, side of the house that I came across James White, uh, Doctor Michael Kruger. Both uh, Dr. Michael Kruger is the president of Reformed Theological Seminary, and he's done a ton of amazing works that are available for free about the canon and the early text of the Bible. So it, it, they kind of were interrelated, I, I guess you could say. Sweet. Okay. That is, that's good stuff to hear. That's good to, to understand your background and kind of how those things are related, because that probably has a lot to do with the conversation we're going to have tonight. Uh, well, I guess this afternoon. Uh, I'm used to doing it tonight in the night, but uh, 1.30 is kind of refreshing for me because by the time I get off work in the evening, I'm usually pretty tired and my thoughts are not that organized and my thoughts are not that organized most of the time, even when I'm not tired. So uh, this is good um, from my side to be able to do it during the day. Um, and Nate, I'm going to go over kind of what uh, what we have agreed to. I'm going to pull it up on the screen um, okay. for what the... Um, what do you call it? The organize uh, the structure for how this debate is going to go. So, Nate is going to represent the affirmative side of saying that. Um, how did you, what was your affirmative thesis, if you would word that? Uh, well, uh, I believe it was that um, does the modern critical text reflect uh, the doctrine and preservation of by God? Okay, and I'm so he'll have 20 minutes to support that statement that the modern cri- critical text would, in fact, it's obviously in question form, but um, does the modern critical text support the doctrine of preservation? And then I'll have a five-minute rebuttal in response to that. Uh, then I will give my presentation um, and a 20-minute negative statement that um, the critical text is not representative or consistent with the doctrine of preservation, and then Nate will have five minutes to rebut that. Um, Once we get through the opening statements, I think it's very important to establish what 
um, what we are taking a stance on individually, and then that'll transition into the six variants that we will discuss. Nate will have three variants, I will have three variants, and uh, after each variant, each variant, you'll have five minutes to present your positive, uh, and then five minutes to rebut it right after one after the other. Um, so Nate will go through his three variants first, I will respond to each of those, then I will go through into my three variants next, and show how the traditional text is obviously going to be representative of how these are preserved as opposed to the critical text uh, throughout history. And that will transition to five-minute closing statements. For those of you who are viewing live, you will have a chance to get involved in this debate because we're going to open it up to you at the end. So uh, with that said, that is going to be, I'm going to minimize this. That way we can make sure um, it's something that we can we can see, actually. Let me get rid of that altogether. It'll be 20 and 5, 20 and 5. What I'm going to do is put this timer up here. It'll be a countdown. Uh, the only thing that's not that great about this timer is I can't say, like, countdown from 20 minutes. I have to say, like, uh, go until 2 o'clock or 2.03, 2.05, and it'll count down from there. So it won't be exactly 20 minutes. I'm sure you uh, had already told me you're going to keep track of your, your time as well on your stopwatch. So what I'm going to do here is go up to, uh, go up to, I'll put it at 2.04, that'll be 20 minutes and 20 seconds, and I'm going to put that on the screen so those of you viewing can see how much time Nate has. And with that said, I'll turn it over to you for your opening statement, unless you had something that you wanted to discuss prior to that. Let me good? just uh, put my phone on. Let me put my phone on. Do not disturb, so that it okay. doesn't. We don't get any disconnections or anything. Sweet. Okay. Um, so we're ready to begin. I guess you could say. Yes, sir. Whenever and it doesn't have to be right at twenty minutes. I mean, just you know, just uh, some somewhere close within the realm. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, I'll go ahead and start then. Uh, so let me first preface uh, my position by stating that uh, I am speaking to you right now in language and you are understanding what I am saying. We are communicating with each other. In the same way, God the Creator in times past chose to communicate with his creatures. And while he did so at times with his spoken voice, uh, he also uh, did this by using his written word through inspiration and the superintendence of the Holy Spirit. In Matthew 20-31, we read that uh, Jesus says, Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Jesus, uh, debating the Sadducees here, cites Exodus 3-6, which was penned by Moses, but he states that uh, what you are reading is, in fact, God speaking. And in the same way, in uh, 2 Timothy 3-16, we read that, uh, God has inspired his word, which is uh, Greek theonoustos, so God breathed, and it is uh, inherently inspired into the autographs. The inspired autographs are then copied and then lost to history. These copies of the originals are copied copiously and so widespread that no single authority can possess all the manuscripts and make wholesale changes at will. Um, then the variants uh, came down through the copying of the New Testament, but with the variants also came the original readings with them, and what I uh, believe is every word that the biblical authors wrote. And what I'm defending is textual criticism allows us to sift through these variants, the vast majority of which could not be translated into plain English, and thus come to reasoned conclusions on what the authors originally wrote. 
And I must make note here that textual criticism is not a modern-day invention, for the scholars in the Reformation also had to make textual decisions as well. So, to summarize, God breathes out his scriptures into the autographa, which were the original texts of the biblical authors, and they are inerrant in the truths they communicate. But how has God preserved this inspired sacred word? God's word did not float down from heaven in a single volume with gold line pages and thumb indexing. It was not photocopied by God in every generation, nor did it need to be re-inspired in every generation of the church. God breathed out his scriptures one time, uh, and it was superintended by the Holy Spirit through human authors, and then through his sovereign means over history, preserved it in the widespread multiplicity and multifocality of manuscripts. So the age of ignorance is over. As Christians, uh, our, God's word is attacked um, rather voraciously in our day and age, but we do not have to be afraid of the facts when studying um, how our Bible came down to be. And the resources available to us are not esoteric or hidden if one would take the time to study it out. So let's go over some facts that we need to wrestle with as Christians. We no longer possess the original autographs of Scripture from the biblical authors. And why God allowed them to pass from history in his sovereignty, or is, is in his sovereignty, but I speculate it was probably to prevent idolatry. Uh, when I was stationed in Europe, there was a church in France that claimed to have the spear that pierced Jesus' side. And likewise, if you study the history of the Catholic Church, you'll discover that people had splinters of the cross and angel feathers. And so I imagine it was to prevent idolatry of those originals. We also have to wrestle with the fact that textual variation happened in copying the manuscripts down through the ages. Uh, this happened in both the traditional text that my opponent is defending and also in, in the critical text platform. And some of these variants were rather silly. For example, in the Byzantine manuscript 109, uh, evidently a scribe tried to make a table with Jesus' genealogy in Luke. And uh, as a result, God ended up being the son of Enoch. And it was a, it was a well intended result, but with a, a funny result um, because of that. Likewise, in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7, there are some manuscripts that instead of saying we were gentle among you, by one letter difference in the Greek changes to we were little horses among you. But it's through textual criticism seeing that both of these readings could not possibly be the original that uh, the authors wrote. Also, there was a thing called parallel corruption, which some scribes, if they were copying Matthew, they would remember certain reading in Luke, and they would determine that, well, Matthew must have that as well. And sometimes you ended up with accidental additions. But more to come on that. Does the loss of these autographs and textual variants in the manuscripts mean we can have no longer any confidence or knowledge as to what God breathed out? This leads to different conclusions as to where the originals are today. There are some in history who have ascribed inerrancy to a translation. Uh, in the Reformation, Rome did this with the Vulgate under Pope Sixtus. Instead of having to deal with the variants, they instead just said, this is the text of, that has been the text of the church for 1,100 years. It is inerrant. The variants don't matter. Uh, then um, there is uh, the side that I'm defending, which is textual criticism, the discipline that attempts to determine the original wording of any document whose original no longer exists through careful analysis of both internal and external evidence. It is through this methodology that we desire to know what Paul, Peter, John originally wrote, etc. 
And every ancient work has to uh, deal with this, whether it be Plato or Aristotle, and it requires scholars to engage in textual criticism to ascertain the original readings. One difference I would note that separates the New Testament is that I believe that we have had all the original readings. Other ancient works have large gaps that require scholars to make guesswork to fill them in. On the opposite side of the spectrum, there is Dr. Bart Ehrman. Now, Bart Ehrman came to the conclusion that if God truly did inspire his word and preserve it, he would have done so without a single textual variant. Now, think about what Bart Ehrman is proposing here in regards to the doctrine of preservation. How exactly would God accomplish this by the demands that Ehrman proposes? Would a scribe burst into flames um, as he was about to pin the wrong word from his copy? Would an angel suddenly appear and shout, don't write that epsilon, there's a sigma that's supposed to go there. Uh, that, that is the demands, the photocopy demands that Ehrman is proposing here. But in a minute, I will give my defense of preservation from history and the facts surrounding the transmission of the text. But I just wanted to point out the different views of where the originals are today. I believe that we have always had them. And Bart Ehrman uh, has stated that uh, because there are textual variants, we can no longer know the originals. So my defense of preservation is this. God preserved his word by first inspiring it and having it written down by human authors under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit. These originals were copied numerously and widely spreading throughout numerous geographic locations through multiple lines of transmission so that no single authority could ever gather up all the existing manuscripts and make wholesale changes at will. And it was through this widespread copying of scriptures that textual variation resulted as a byproduct of the mechanism God used to preserve his word, which was not in the way Bart Ehrman proposed. But along with these variants also came the original readings. And how do we know this? For example, whole swaths of scripture exist in the manuscript tradition without a single variant known. John 1.1, an important text on the deity of Christ, does not have any known variants among all the manuscripts we possess of John. Essentially, what we have here are errant copies of inerrant originals, and when we examine the manuscripts God preserved in his providence, we can have a very high degree of certainty of recovering the original from these copies. Now, let's deal with some other facts. The New Testament suffers from an embarrassment of riches, as Daniel Wallace notes. Not counting the one million plus church father citations, the 10,000 plus Latin and other language witnesses, Right now, we have well over 5,800 catalog manuscripts in the Greek language alone, of which a noteworthy amount are found within 200 years of the originals. P52, uh, which is the size of a credit card containing John 1831 through 36, is the oldest manuscript we have, and it's dated between 15 to 45 years after the original, and it reads exactly like our Bibles that we have. No other work of antiquity possesses the textual wealth or purity of transmission that the Greek New Testament can boast of. And what an incredible blessing this is. For example, Xenophon's Hellenica, the earliest manuscript it has to its original, is 1,800 years after it was written. The New Testament has P52, which could be within mere decades. Now, as it stands, there are roughly 400,000 variants in the New Testament manuscripts we possess which if you did the math, there are about 138,000 words in the Greek New Testament that would come out to about one word or uh, three variants for every word of the New Testament. Now, you'll often hear that stated, you know, there's more variants than there are words in the New Testament. But if, if that fact is presented, 
It's misleading because it's not explained or examined in detail. The reason we have so many variants is because we have such an unrivaled quantity of text. Um, and it is not the quantity of these variants that matter, but the quality. If we had one manuscript, we would have zero variants because it would be alone. But the fact that we have 5,800 multiplies that number numerously. So basically what I've heard this explained as is we have a 10,000 piece jigsaw puzzle with 10,100 pieces. Now, what are the different types of variants that we find in the New Testament manuscript tradition? Uh, the first one is nonsense. These represent 99% of the 400,000 textual variants. So these are spelling errors, slips of the pen, uh, um, transposition of words, most of which could not be translated into plain English. The second is viable but not meaningful. These are variants that can have a high degree of confidence of being the original reading, but have zero impact on the meaning of the text. For example, uh, some scribes thought that John's name in Greek, Ioannin, was spelled with two news instead of one. But John's spelling of his name, even though we have a high degree of certainty as how it was originally spelled, has no meaning on the impact of the text that he wrote. And then there's meaningful but not viable. These are variants that do change the meaning of the text, but could not possibly be the original. One such uh, variant is Hebrews 2.9. In one late medieval manuscript, uh, instead of reading um, Jesus Christ died by the grace of God, it reads um, apart from God. Now, the difference between those two readings is one letter in the Greek, uh, chorus or chorus. It's a, a alpha and omega. An alpha looks like the letter A, the omega looks like an O. And so the difference is literally one line. So as we can see, a scribe could have accidentally mistaken chorus for chorus, thus that variant happened. So we can have a high degree of confidence that this was not an original reading of the author of Hebrews. And the last group, which is the smallest but most significant group, is the variants that are viable and meaningful. These are the smallest, or, or excuse me, there's about 1,500 to 2,000 of these um, that scholars have determined which, if you do the math, is less than 0.5% that requires significant, meaningful, critical analysis. Many of these variants are resolved through careful internal and external analysis and exegesis of the text. One such meaningful and viable variant I'll mention is Jude 1.5. So in the English Standard Version and uh, the recently released Christian Standard Bible, it reads, Jesus saved the people out of Egypt, at, um, in contrast to the other English translations we have that say, the Lord saved the people out of Egypt. And I have a copy here that shows that the difference between these is literally uh, two lines. So here's uh, Kappa Sigma for Lord, and here is uh, Iota Sigma for Jesus. So it would have the line above for the Nomen is Sacred because that was the divine name. And if you, obviously these were written on papyrus, so if you, crink, if you crinkled up the text, a scribe could have easily seen that there was a shadow and thus in uh, Iota could have easily became a Kappa through the transmission of the text. And obviously, if the if Jesus is an original reading, which uh, the new the Nesli Allen twenty eighth edition came to that conclusion, it does have profound theological implications because it is a clear evidence that Jesus was pre incarnate, and thus was involved in the saving of the Israelites out of Egypt. Uh, so, but again, I note that 05 percent of the existing New Testament manuscripts require this in depth critical analysis. And as a final note, I must make mention that not a single one of these variants affects a cardinal doctrine of Scripture because doctrines are built on the whole testimony of Scriptures to a particular issue. So to summarize uh, the points that I've made is this. The original text is preserved somewhere in the overall textual tradition. 
The vast majority of scribal changes are minor and insignificant and could not be translated into plain English. Of the small portions that are significant, our methodology can determine with a reasonable degree of certainty which reading is the original text. And then lastly, the remaining number of unresolved variants are very few and not material to the story or the teaching of the New Testament. As I close out with my remaining six minutes here, I would like to put textual criticism into action um, with a certain passage of scripture. So this last year, I wrote a commentary on Ephesians, uh, the book of Ephesians, where I went through every single variant found. And I just want to go through Ephesians 1, 1 through 14, which is a very important passage to Christians. So as it stands, Ephesians 1, 1 through 14 has 14 variant readings. So if you did the math, that would come out to about one variant per text. But let's look at the math here. Four verses are without a single variant. That's verses 2, 5, 8, and 12. They have come down to us without any variation in reading. Four verses have one variant reading. That's uh, verses 3, 4, 10, and 14. Four verses have two variant readings, 6, 7, 11, and 13. And lastly, uh, two verses, verses 1 and 9, have three variant readings. Now, right off the bat, 11 of these variants are nonsense. For example, in verse 1, some manuscripts read Jesus Christ instead of Christ Jesus. The difference is just a transposition of words. And given that Paul often uses Christ Jesus, this is not at any, in any way meaningful to the text. Also, uh, there are some manuscripts that say all the saints instead of the saints. Again, it, it, the, these types of variants do not impact the text in any meaningful way. But there are three variants in the, these 14 verses that do have some weight. In verse 7, one manuscript has riches of his kindness instead of uh, riches of his grace. And it's probably that the scribe borrowed this um, Pauline phrase from Romans 2.4, which also reads riches of his kindness. In verse 11, some codexes read, in him we have been chosen as an inheritance instead of in him we have obtained an inheritance. The difference between these two readings is two letters in the Greek, and given the the context of the passage, you know, chosen before the foundation of the world, predestined as adoption, it's evident how the scribe could have accidentally seen that reading, and that thus became the reading in those codexes. Now, the last variant I want to mention that's probably the most weighty of all is verse 1. So a noteworthy amount of early manuscripts do not have in Ephesus in verse 1. So it essentially reads, to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. If in Ephesus is not original, then this would be the only epistle written by Paul that does not contain a specific target audience or church. If one reads the epistle, you'll notice that unlike his others, no one is mentioned by name in the entire letter until Tychicus, uh, in the end, possibly the courier who carried the letter. But does this variant in the end have any impact on the contents of the letter? All things considered, absolutely not. The Ephesian Christians here were not the only recipients in history of the manifold blessings exposited throughout the letter. So whether this was intended to a specific church in Ephesus or to be a circulatory letter to uh, many saints in all the churches in that area, the promises and commandments contained within the letter of Ephesians are not affected. So as we've seen textual criticism in action in Ephesians 1, 1 through 14, I want to summarize this. Let me do this by turning there. So we see here that it talks about the spiritual blessings in Christ. Uh, we have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We've been chosen in him before the foundation of the world. He's predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. Uh, we have forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace with redemption through his blood. 
Uh, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined. And lastly, we have the, the, seal, the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. So virtually what we have here is all these promises with a virtually 100% airtight text with a few meaningless variants that have no impact on what um, Paul wrote here. Now, I, I will make note that not all passages of Scripture are, are like this. There are some passages some passages that have very difficult variants to look at, but I just wanted to give you an example of textual criticism in action and, and looking at how this came about. So as I close out my defense here, can we have confidence in God's Word? Let me go over the facts again. 5,800 plus manuscripts in the Greek language alone, which was the original language God inspired the New Testament in. Multiple authors, 1,500 years of transmission by scribes who were facing persecution, copying by candlelight, copying in unheated, unheated homes, facing writer's fatigue, not having LASIK or glasses to do so. And all we have to do is meaningful, critical, analytical work on less than 0.5% of the text copied down to us from the originals. That, to me, is an incredible supernatural superintending of the text that God preserved to us. It is not a cancer to the church that we have such a wealth of information, and nor do I affirm that scholarship ceased in the Reformation. Serious historical research, especially relating to the Bible, is never the work of the devil, and as long as we use reliable translations that seek to faithfully capture the meaning and the nuance of the source text, we can be confident in the preserved word. You will not find a different gospel in the modern critical text. You will not find a different Jesus. Contrary to what uh, some scholars may say, the deity of Christ is not only present in the critical text. In some places, it is stronger than the traditional text. And you will also have all the cardinal faith or doctrines of faith intact. Um, also, I want to preface by saying you will have evidence and support for every verse in the New Testament. And so long as we still draw breath on this earth, I am thankful that uh, God and his sovereignty has provided what he has for his church. It is sometimes a messy thing to get down and get our hands dirty and fervently research the history of the transmission of the text. But in all things considered, this gives us a robust and airtight confidence to defense to the most fervent hyperskeptic who would dare claim that God's words no longer exist or never were. Sweet. Good job, man. I have got five minutes to respond to this. And let me see if I can get my countdown timer up here. Give me just a second. All right, so we'll go to, let's say, yeah, 210. That'll give me five seconds to get rid of this. I'll put this over here. Put the screen on me. Cool. All right, let me pull up my notes. I tried to keep track as much as I could. Uh, what you were writing down. I've got a few points that I will address. The first point being inspired uh, in the autographs only. So the very first point that you were making in your introduction was a definition of what inspiration is. And uh, you talked about um, the origin of inspiration, of it being God-breathed, and how those... You gave a couple of different definitions as, it, as, as the presentation kind of went. Uh, and that it started out God-breathed, and then it started out in the original autographs. 
So um, you said that the variants came through the copies of the New Testament and those autographs are what the original apostles wrote. Now obviously since we don't have the original autographs, what we are going off of would be the apographs, which would simply be the copies of what the original was. So in that sense and in that regard, um, I think that it's it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek to say that the original autographs were inspired uh, and yet we don't have those anymore because what you're essentially saying is there is no such thing as um, an inspired uh, Word of God that's on this planet because we haven't found it yet. And uh, what that leads into is the doctrine of preservation. I think if you start off with a pretty rough uh, definition of what the doctrine of inspiration is and then you give examples of uh, such the of the examples that you did, I think it, it ma makes it really tough to stand on a doctrine of preservation that God actually has given us what he wants us to have throughout history uh, in comparison to what man has done with what God has given us throughout history. So, uh, in that regard, I would say that you have to look at uh, even the New Testament, for example, in multiple um, places, you have the New Testament that is quoting the Old Testament Hebrew and recording it in Greek. So you've got a translation that is that is actually inspired in the Greek text. You also have examples of that in the Old Testament where uh, the Old Testament is recorded in Hebrew, uh, but conversations may not have and probably did not happen or occur in Hebrew. So you've got translation in the Old Testament that was inspired and preserved as well. Now, you said that God breathes it into the text, and that's inerrant, the truths that they communicate. So, what I would say is it's it, it's not just the truths that are communicated. It's not just the truths that would be inerrant or inspired that God gave to the originals. Um, it would be every word, and it would be every letter, and it would be every jot, and it would be every tittle. Now, when, when we take a stance like that as someone on the preserved uh, traditional side of this argument, um, it, it may seemingly be very difficult to back up that. That's why I'm willing to have this conversation where we talk about the variants uh, within the, the text of the preserved Word of God. Now, I, I don't think that it's just the general message that's communicated and preserved. I don't think that was God's intention. I think that it was God's intention not to photocopy it, uh, not to re-inspire it, not to preserve it in the multiplicity or the multifocality of the original autographs, uh, but to give us exactly what he said he was going to give us, and that's his words and every jot and every tittle, so you've got every theta mark and every every little sigma and every every little mark that you've got that would that would be a preservation of the text. Now that's what we're going to talk about when we get into textual variation. Uh, I've got about a minute and a half left here, and I'd like to I'd like to in my final response. Obviously, there's a lot to address there. I think the numbers are way exaggerated. 400,000 variants and 138,000 words. Now, obviously, um, if you really break that down, I think Jeff Riddle does a good job of this, Douglas Stafer, Dean Bergen, Jay McGee. These guys do an excellent job of actually breaking down what that number is. It's probably somewhere closer to 12 or 1,300 if you're not looking at all of the different manuscripts and saying, well, we've got 5,800 manuscripts. And uh, what you're doing is you're multiplying that number exponentially based off of the variance of each manuscript. So I think that that number is absolutely inflated. And finally, to wrap it up, I'll, I'll wrap it up this way and say that if I am going to take a stance on the doctrine of preservation, uh, I'm, I'm definitely, absolutely, without a doubt, not going to be doing it through guys like Daniel Wallace and Bart Ehrman. I think that if you're going to do that, you're going to have a really tough time and end up in a position that James White would take and uh, you're going to end up with a Christian perspective of the Word of God that Muslims will use against you 
to show the inconsistencies of your view in Christianity and the doctrine of preservation. And as a Christian, I think the doctrine of preservation is a lot bigger uh, than Bart Ehrman or Daniel Wallace or James White. And I think it's a lot bigger than you or I. And I think ultimately what it comes down to is uh, faith. I think that it's faith that is not blind. I think it's faith that can be traceable throughout history. So with that said, I'll turn it over to you. And let me get this timer back up. We'll get into your first... Oh, so I, I was... I was under the conclusion that you would jump into your opening statement now, and I would rebut yours. Okay. Yeah, that's perfectly okay. fine by me. So let me get my new countdown overlay up here. I've never used this before, so I'm pretty excited. All right. So that'll be 20 minutes, 30 seconds. Let's see. All right. Here's my introduction. All right. So thank you again, Nate. I really appreciate you doing this. I, I think that it's something that's extremely important to Christianity. I think that it's something every Christian needs to take seriously, uh, the doctrine of preservation. And the doctrine of preservation is so big, like I mentioned uh, just a moment ago, the doctrine of preservation really it does. It comes down to faith. Why did God allow variants to be transmitted uh, throughout history. Um, why would we take seriously a comment from Bart Ehrman who says, well, if I was God, I wouldn't allow there to be any variants, and, uh, and think that a guy who doesn't even believe in God anymore, doesn't believe in a final authority of any word of God on this planet, and yet take that guy as the authority for what we would, uh, you know, back up our doctrine of preservation as Christians. I just think that that is, uh, it's a shame to do that. And I think that it gives, I think that it does give Muslims and atheists and agnostics um, a platform to stand on when we are actually saying the same things that they are um, it, to refute what we believe on uh, the doctrine of preservation. So here's, here's what I'm going to do today. Number one, I'll be defining what the debate is. Ultimately, what we are def uh, actually defining and explaining uh, what we should and should not examine um, within the doctrine of preservation. What are we actually saying when we talk about the doctrine of um, preservation? So I'm going to discuss that. I'm going to talk about the impact that textual criticism has actually had on our modern English Bible versions. And then lastly, I'll be defending the traditional text, which the King James Bible actually came from, uh, as well as the Geneva, the Tyndale, um, uh, and all of the other English versions, the Great Bible, um, Coverdale's, the Geneva Bible, I think I already mentioned that, um, and all of these different English Bibles that we've, we've had throughout history. So um, I think it'll be a, a stance not on the King James-only controversy, but the text that underwrites the King James Bible. I think that's very important to distinguish. The Bible was around before 1611. Uh, any King James-only guy who takes a stance that it wasn't, I'm in disagreement with you just as much as I am in disagreement with any critical text um, advocate. So um, I think that the doctrine of preservation would support what I am uh, trying to defend here. And that would be that there are very specific variations within the text of scripture um, throughout history, whether it's on the traditional side or whether it is on the critical side. And when we really break those down and examine them, we need to understand what's at stake here. So I'm going to address that finally. So the debate finally, ultimately, it'll come down to one thing. That is the issue of the canon of Scripture. This debate is not about variance uh, within the textual support of whatever Greek text you're looking at. 
Um, really what it comes down to is canon. What do, we, what do I mean by canon? What I mean by canon is what is settled scripture? What is the word of God? Uh, is it something that you can take a stand on and say, this is God's word? Canon means it's settled, it's established, it's fact. There are no additions, no subtractions, no changes uh, to what that text is. It's settled. Uh, I think that when you get into the study of textual criticism, essentially what you are studying is what is canon. You're trying to cut out, add to, subtract from, and replace what you believe is not canon. Uh, the three examples of this that I'm going to bring up tonight, or this afternoon rather, is going to be 1 John 5, 7, the, the greatest uh, doctrine on the Trinity, the greatest verse on the doctrine of the Trinity within the entire Bible, uh, and then the uh, the woman caught in adultery in John 7, 53 through 8, 11, and then finally Mark 16, verses 9 through 20. Um, these are these are the, the main texts that are in question on whether or not they are in fact um, canon. So um, should those be in your Bible? That's what the question is. Do you believe that those texts should be in your Bible as a viewer? If you do not believe that those verses and those passages should be in the Bible, you might consider what Nate is going to tell you very seriously. If you believe that they should be in your Bible, you should consider what I have to say here today extremely carefully. Uh, because I believe that the canon of Scripture has been settled. Um, I believe it was settled way prior to 2018 and now nearly 2019. I think that it's something that we need to take seriously as Christians. Um, do we really have to take into consideration and question a number of different things regarding God's full revelation of what he's given us in Scripture? Ultimately, what it comes down to when you question canon, when you question the things that should and should not be in the Bible through textual criticism, through textual variation, and say they shouldn't or they should be, uh, what you're ultimately doing is questioning the, the revelation of God and saying, we actually can have further revelation of God. Um, so if, I, if you're going to take that position, you open yourself up to a huge, uh, a huge, a huge problem. That problem being, uh, well, you might as well accept... Uh, uh, the book of Enoch and the book of Judas and, and the book these other books that they're discovering in the sands over there in the Dead Sea where the same same area that you're discovering and, and came up with Vaticanus and Sinaiticus um, to say that this is what we need to use as uh, further revelation from God to change the Bible. Uh, so those things are things that you need to consider. If you're going to change those verses and those passages, you need to add the Gospel of Judas. And you also need to add the, go the uh, Book of Enoch into canon. And you might as well add those uh, other Catholic uh, apocryphal books that uh, were never considered canon as well, because you, you might consider those canon. I don't know. Uh, they were found in Sinaiticus. They're found in Vaticanus as well. So maybe you, maybe you consider those canon as well. I don't know. So my position is real simple. It's settled. There's no question about it. We have a more sure word uh, than even the very words of God speaking out of a cloud or, or through the, the uh, Mount of Transfiguration. We've got a more sure word of prophecy than even God speaking through the prophets in the Old Testament. We have a more sure word of God than God showing up in person and speaking to you directly because it's written down, it's recorded, it's what Jesus quoted against Satan. It's settled, man. It, there's nothing that you can do to overturn it. If you are questioning these, these things, uh, you're really questioning canon. And ultimately what it comes down to is you're sticking to a critical text, which um, would be either Nestle Allen's uh, 28th, soon they're going to have um, the 29th edition. I think they're saying it's coming out in 2019. And then the UBS, uh, they're on their 5th edition. You'll probably uh, be on the 6th and 7th edition of that in, in just a, a few short years. So what you, what you have in a critical text is an ever-evolving evolutionary text. It's not settled.
it's up for debate. It's up for discussion. It's up for dialogue and uh, really a scholarship um, discussion on what should and should not be in the Bible. And I think that's the position that you have to take. It's it's up for debate, man. Anything that you think shouldn't be in there, we need to look at these. Uh, we need to look at these witnesses and decide whether or not it should or shouldn't be in there. And then eventually we'll come up with in in Nate's own words uh, a Bible that um, either is going to preserve uh, through a manuscript that is going to be discovered um, the inspired text itself, or you're going to come to something that's as close to the originals as as you can get. Need to see how much time I've got. Uh, cool, almost thirteen minutes. So, uh, so that's what you've got. Here's my question: In a hundred years, if you continue to follow uh, the critical text um, um, methodology of um, translating uh, the Greek text or preserving the Greek text, um, you're going to have a, a a Bible that is way beyond anything what it is today. It's not even a resemble what what you've got today. Yeah, at the attempts that they have gone to destroy uh, the deity of Christ, the blood of Christ, the atonement of Christ, uh, the virgin birth, all of these things that the critical text is absolutely attacking, you're not going to have any of that. You're going to have a Bible that is open to any religion. I mean, a Muslim could read it and see his religion in it. And you can have a Buddhist that would that, that could look at it and see the new... You've got all of these things, and it's founded on whether or not you want to admit it. It, it's founded on what um, Westcott and Hort established as um, the critical Greek text back in 1881 that challenged um, what everybody believed up to that point. So we'll talk a little bit about Westcott and Hort, but really ultimately what you've got is a very dangerous evolutionary and evasive text. Um, as Bible-believing, traditional, uh, upholding Christians, I would say on my position, we can trace the Bible throughout history and take a stance on every argument very seriously and say, you're wrong. Nate, if you believe this, I can tell you as a brother in Christ, you're wrong on this issue. You need to go back to what you were looking at uh, before with the, the King James side of things um, where the Bible was actually preserved, uh, especially in, in, in the context of what I'm talking about in English version. Which English version can we trust? Do you have to learn the Greek? Do you have to learn the Hebrew to actually get God's words? And I would say you don't. Uh, I, I would say that you don't have to learn the Greek and the Hebrew to have God's words um, for the same reasons as I listed earlier. Uh, let me turn to a, a few words of what Dean Bergen has to say about, about this. On page 17, he wrote a book called Unholy Hands on the Bible. On page 17 in his, his preface, he says this, when we're talking about the variants in the Bible... Uh, let's see. I don't know why I put page 17. We've got to define what we actually mean by talking about variants. Ah, uh, okay. So this is something to really consider. I know that, Nate, you are uh, from the Reformed position of Christianity. Um, obviously, I've got a, a huge issue with the Reformed position of um, soteriology. Um, and maybe that's something we can talk about in the future. Um, but I think that you had told me that you are a confessional reformed, which means that you would uphold what the confessions would state regarding uh, the doctrine of preservation. And Dean Bergen actually wrote this. It really bothers him uh, that that um, confessional, confessional Christians would actually take a stance against the traditional text. Here's what he says. He says, in accordance with the scripture, all the old confessions of faith clearly affirm that God is the supreme judge, not only one, uh, not only took care of, 
to have his word, which is the power of God and salvation to everyone that believeth, committing it to writing by Moses, the prophets, and the apostles, but he also, but has also watched and cherished it with the paternal care ever since it was written upon the present time, up to the present time, so that it could not be corrupted by craft of Satan or fraud of men. That's uh, from 1675, the Westminster Confession of Faith. They also have something similar to say. Um, the scripture is plain, it's clear. Uh, he says, every generation of the faithful, he says, all flesh is as grass and all glory, all the glory of man is the flower of grass, but the word of the Lord remains forever. It's easy for heaven and the earth to pass away. Uh, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than that uh, one tittle of the law shall fail. And then he says in Matthew 5, 18, until the heavens of the earth do pass away, no way shall one iota or one jot or one tittle pass away from the law until all comes to pass. Now, what our textual critical friends in, in, the, in the word would say, I wouldn't necessarily say we're friends when it comes to this, this doctrine of preservation. Um, I can be friends with the outside of that, but when it comes to the doctrine of preservation, we're going to disagree greatly. And, uh, and me and Nate do. I would consider him a good guy. I think he's a good guy, but I would definitely vehemently say you are wrong on this. He asked the question, Dean Bergen does, he asked the question, of those who scoff at God's providential preservation of the text, is it indeed credible that almighty wisdom, which is observed to have made such abundant provision from the safety of the humblest forms of animal life, from the preservation of all the seeds and the seeds of noxious plants, should yet have omitted to make provision for the life-giving seed of his everlasting word? But what do our textual critical friends say? They're dupes, they're translators to this present day. They say that thousands of words, up to 10,000 fewer words in their New Testaments of their modern translations have been buried from 1,000 to 1,800 years ago in Egyptian sands and monasteries and trash cans and wastebaskets and even in the Pope's library. I think it's extremely telling to see that the difference between what I am taking a stance on is that you are not even attempting to say that there was a doctrine of preservation up until Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, and it's not even traceable throughout history until this modern textual critical side of study came in 1881 under Westcott and Hort to extremely unchristian. I'll even I, I don't even have any hesitation to say those guys are not Christians. Those guys were devil worshipping uh, uh, guys who absolutely took a stance. That they, I mean, uh, that would have seances in their own homes, not simply to study seances, but to actually f uh, go to the lengths of founding three different, um, uh, uh, what do you call them, um, uh, New Age, if you want to call it. What they established and and some of the things that they established was actually the foundation for the New Age movement that we're seeing today. But all right, so I've got six minutes left. Let me wrap it up this way, guys. The real question is determining what is settled and what isn't. If you're Reformed, you've got to reject the critical text as well if you take a confessional perspective, if you take a, a confessional stance because your confessions take a stance on the traditional text. Jeff Riddle does a really good job about this, and he is Reformed. If you ever get a chance to listen to him, check him out at jeffriddle.net. Uh, he does a really good job of upholding and taking a stance even against other Reformed folk um, the doctrine of preservation through the traditional text. So, from my perspective, you've only got two Bibles today. 
You've got one Bible that comes from Antioch and one Bible that comes from Rome. Today, you've still got those same two choices. You've got the Byzantine and then you've got uh, the Alexandrian, which is where the Vaticanus, Sinaiticus, and Alexandrinus came from, which are the foundations for the critical text uh, in Egypt. All right. So here's 2 Corinthians 2.17. He gives us a warning about what's happening even back in his time. He says, For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God and the sight of God we speak we uh, speak we in Christ. So some versions will change that and say we are not as many which handle the word of God deceitfully. Um, the New American Standard Bible would actually say that it's a uh, that um, they didn't corrupt it, but they're simply what does it say? They handle it with impiety or impunity. I thought that I put that quote in here. Um, oh, peddling. It says that they, they're peddling the Word of God. It says peddling and then has a footnote that says corrupting in the NASB. So the NASB actually recognized that it was a, a correct translation to say corrupt the Word of God, but they didn't want to say corrupt because uh, I, I think personally it would indict them in the fact that they are corrupting the Word of God, um, but uh, really they just would peddle it. So it seems like a less, less of a, a nasty thing to peddle it rather than corrupt it. So um, you're getting rid of the doctrine that there is actually, in fact, corruptions within the Word of God. So the first thing that we've got to do is take back a step back, honestly ask ourselves, Nate, I would ask you this. Can you identify corruptions of the Word of God? Can you say, yes, there are corruptions? And I think that you and I have had this conversation in the past that you do say, yes, we, there are absolutely corruptions. Uh, specifically, we've, we've addressed the New Living Translation, which is a Jehovah's Witness cult translation that gets rid of uh, the doctrine of hell as well as the deity of Christ and a number of other things that they don't agree with. Um, but I would say that we have to identify that there are, in fact, corruptions. Paul identified that there are, there were, in fact, corruptions. So if we're going to do that, we have to be able to nail down how do we say there are corruptions and what are corrupt and what are not corrupt. We would say, yeah, New Living, corrupt, <laughs> New Living Translation is corrupt. Uh, we would also say that the Queen James Bible is corrupt and getting rid of uh, Adam and Eve and putting Adam and Steve in the garden to get rid of the doctrine that, of sin within homosexuality. I would say that that's wrong, and we would also say those two versions are corrupt and wrong. Now, how do we do this? Um, I would also say that these new versions attack the blood of Christ just as much as the deity, uh, just as much as the deity of Christ is attacked in the Jehovah's Witness translation. I would say the suffering Savior is challenged. I would say the identity of the Savior is challenged. I would say that uh, the identity of who Jesus Christ is challenged. I would say the Lord's Prayer is changed to from worshiping God. Obviously, uh, something that would challenge you to um, worship the devil in the Lord's Prayer. And these are things that we could probably examine in the future together if you ever wanted to. I'd say the authority of Christ is given to the devil in Isaiah 14, 12, uh, as well as a number of other places. So ultimately, I would say these new versions are, are slowly evolving into a place that they're going to teach you who to worship. Um, Jesus becomes Lucifer already. We see this. Uh, Jesus' biological father is not the Holy Spirit. Jesus is no longer the, the only begotten son of God, but he is one of many sons of God, and he's not even begotten, but even in the New, New American Standard Bible, he's now a begotten God. So that does away with the doctrine of who Jesus Christ is and his eternal nature. But let me sum it up with this. If we're going to identify a cult, if we're going to identify a uh, corrupt translation, if we're going to identify a corrupt Greek text, we have to have a standard by which to do it. And the standard by which I have found um, is absolutely the consistent standard and one by which I will be using um, when I examine these critical, uh, when I examine these textual variants on my side, 
Um, I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to follow what Dean Bergen does. There's seven points that he does. He calls them the seven notes of truth, the seven ways to identify what is and is not corrupt. Now, when, when, when you mentioned that the variations between even the traditional text are, are minor, they're identifiable, I'd say that the, the, the um, corruptions that um, would be the variants within the critical text are not minor. They're doctrinal. They're absolute changes that need to be addressed. Here's how you address them. Number one, antiquity or the primitiveness, the age of something. Uh, that would be one way. We would consent the other witnesses or the number. How many witnesses are there to uh, these primitive and antique um, notes of truth that we would say is canon? Three, the variety of the evidence or the catholicity. Uh, four, the respectability or the witnesses or the weight. How respectable are they? When we talk about Westcott and Hort, are those respectable guys that we consider their witnesses weighty? I would say no. The continuity or the unbroken tradition of it. Six, the evidence of the entire passage through context, something that I think the Reformed faith neglects every time they do when they get into soteriology. There's no context in any passage they bring up, but a proof text to support what they believe. Number seven would be the internal considerations or the reasonableness. So that would be the conclusion for my position um, as my opening. But let me sum it up this way, guys. For those of you who are viewing live right now, you still only have two texts. You've got a corrupt text that goes back to Alexandria, Egypt, and then you've got the traditional text that can be traced throughout history back to Antioch, where they were first called Christians. Take this seriously. By the end of this, decide who gives the best support for what they are saying is a textual variant. Uh, that supports the traditional versus the critical side. All right, so uh, I think that'll go back to you, and you'll get into your first um, your first variant. Um, which one is that going to be, Nate? I can't remember. Well, I thought I was going to get a rebuttal first. Oh, that's right. You get your five minute rebuttal. I don't want to. I don't want to. I I don't want to take that away from me. So let me put this up on the screen. I'm going to do a new, a new countdown, and that'll give us five minutes. All right, so you've got five and a half minutes. I'll put it up. There you go. You can start whenever you're ready. Okay. Uh, so a lot of things to cover there. Um, but first off, I just wanted to say that I, I do not defend Bart Ehrman. I don't defend his position because obviously his conclusion of studying the manuscripts led to a different conclusion than mine. So the reason why I did that was because I was showing that his particular view of preservation is not historical in any way. Uh, there was also a mention of um, Jeff Riddle, who I've listened to quite extensively. He said something about 1,300 variants um, in the the traditional text. Um, I, I I don't know where he got that number because I know that uh, we've used computers to determine there's 1,800 variants between the the TR and the Byzantine text type alone. Um, also, um, it is true that Muslims cite uh, Bart Ehrman a lot, and they, when misquoting Jesus came out, almost every attacker against the faith just eats his words up like they're liquid gold. But the thing is that Muslims cut themselves off by attacking the New Testament because they believe that the Quran is the continuation of the New Testament. So by attacking the text that the Quran says it's the continuation of, they're, they're shooting themselves in the foot by doing so. So they don't, they're automatically just refuting their own position themselves. Then there, there was some mention about um, canon issues. The thing is, is that the, the canon is a rule of what, what texts are God-breathed as far as what did he give to the church. And 
I've heard uh, Dr. Kruger make the argument that there's canon one, that God inspires it, and he knows of this canon, and then there's canon two. It's what we have today, which is uh, it was not voted upon. It was not like, oh, we don't want Shepherd of Hermas, get that out, you know, or this. It, it was God leads his people to passively um, like recognize that which is God breathed and, and that which uh, isn't. Uh, so I don't believe that we have a disagreement on canon, but rather variance within the canon of Scripture, because I do not affirm the pseudepigrapha. I do not affirm the apocryphal works. Uh, if you ever take a chance to read the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter, you could see that their nature is vastly different than that of the the Gospels, the four Gospels of the um, the New Testament. And also, there's arguments to be made that most of the most of the codices we have only ever contain the four gospels and not you won't find a manuscript that has a gospel of thomas thrown in or a gospel of peter thrown in there's always ever been the four and including church father citations um i want to set the record straight on codex sinaiticus so i only ever find this ever said in mostly king james or tr literature but codex sinaiticus was not found in a trash can if you read uh, count tischendorf's own journal uh, it was given to him by the head monk that he pulled it out of a closet and it was wrapped in red cloth. You don't, you do not wrap trash in red cloth. And secondly, we're going to get into some variants, and it, and it's there is not this slavish following of what is in the, the uh, Codex Sinaiticus in every in every um, instance. Um, and then there was things said that yes, the Codex Sinaiticus did have the Shepherd of Hermas and other um, apocryphal works. But I also want to make mention that so did the King James Version of 1611. Now, clearly, they made a delineation between the apocryphal works and the what, what was Scripture. But so did the early church of the the early church fathers. That there was the letter of First Clement and uh, Ignatius, the Didache and the Ignatius. They they were edifying to the church, but they were not God breathed. Um. There was some other things like uh, with the NSB, NESB saying uh, that there are those who peddle the word of God. Um, the Geneva Bible there um, reads, uh, make merchandise of. Uh, so obviously there, there is a way to uh, read the Greek in context of those who are trying to make a profit off of uh, preaching. And the Geneva Bible uh, translated that make merchandise of. I do not uh, defend uh, bad translations. I do not defend the Queen James. I do not defend the New World Translation. And why is that? Because there is such a standard as which to compare those two. And it is uh, the, the Greek texts that have been preserved down through the ages to us. I, I also wanted to ask, um, and we probably won't be able to get a chance to discuss it, but uh, I can provide the source, but I do believe that Dean Bergen also challenged the Kama Johannium, which we'll uh, get into, and I'll try to look that up. But also, regarding the 1689 Confessional, scholarship did not end in the Reformation. As long as we draw breath, I think that we should always continually be doing work uh, to study God's Word in the text and the transmission and make recent conclusions as to what uh, the authors of Scripture did originally write. Sweet. So, all right. Hey, uh, that was a good rebuttal. Uh, I think that obviously I won't have a chance to rebut that, so I will leave it as that, and I'll respect the uh, structure for the debate. We have got five minutes. Are you going to get us going on the textual variants, or do you want me to lay out mine first? Do you want to do one and one? Like just I do one, you do one. Yeah, I'm good um, with that. Okay. Um, so 
Let me just make sure my notes are ready. Just let me know which one you're going to do first, and I'll I will. try to make something up in response. All right, so the first one um, I wanted to discuss was uh, Matthew 27, 16 uh, through 17. Uh, let me go ahead and uh, What was that? I'm sorry, I watch. couldn't hear you. Matthew 27, uh, 16 through 17. Okay, perfect. Um, and so I will go ahead. Let me get the text up. So are we ready? Yep, go ahead. Okay. Uh, so in Matthew 27, 16 through 17, um, in almost every translation we have, even in the modern translations, it, it reads, And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you? Or, or whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? In the, the 2011 edition of the New International Version, the New English Translation, and also the complete Jewish Bible, it reads, And they had then a notorious prisoner called Jesus Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who was called Christ? Now, the first time I heard about this variant was from a Jack Trip Chick track when his, the title of it was, the modern translations give the Savior's name to a damnable murderous villain. Jack Chick was not the only one that had that concern uh, because we read in uh, early church history that Origen knew of this re reading. And he also came to the same conclusion stating how, how could uh, our Savior's name uh, have been the name of a murderous villain because no one else in the Bible with that name uh, had the character that Barabbas had. But first, let, let me just go over the textual evidence. Now, this is one of the variants in the Bible where the external evidence and the internal evidence don't match up. We're going to discuss that. So the textual evidence as it stands is there is one 10th century codex called Codex Corridithi uh, that has the G uh, Jesus Barabbas in both verse 16 and 17. Uh, it's also found in Family One. Um, it's found in a 10th century cursive um, 700. It's found in 844 and a couple of Syriac uh, manuscripts. So that, that's it as far as the textual evidence is concerned. It's not in Sinaiticus. It's not in Alexandrinus in the ma majority text. Uh, but the question that I want to ask is, why would a late scribe in the 10th century add this in to his codex um, if it was not original? What would have been his motivation for doing so? Because if you study Codex Cordithi, uh, given the nature of the manuscript, it's Byzantine in nature, and we also uh, learned that uh, the scribe uh, did very well with what he copied. Uh, so the conclusion I've came to is that it, it's evident that he had to have copied it from one of his exemplars. Now, um, another thing, let's look at the internal evidence here. Um, why does Pilate feel the need to uh, give the additional identifier or Jesus who is called Christ? If the original reading is, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ, wouldn't, shall I release to you, Barabbas or Jesus have been sufficient? If the original reading is, shall I release to you, Jesus, Barabbas, or Jesus, who is called the Christ, 
we can understand why Pilate would make that distinction there. Now, then there comes the attack that, um, and it was in the Jack Chick article that uh, Acts 4.12, uh, there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Uh, you said this negates that uh, doctrine. But the, the thing is, is that we must realize that there are other people in Scripture who are called Jesus. Uh, in Acts 13.6, we read of a, a man named Simon Bar-Jesus. That is Simon, the son of Jesus in Aramaic. Uh, and we also read in Colossians 4.11 that Paul knew of a man named uh, Jesus who was called Justice. Uh, likewise, Joshua's name in the Old Testament in Greek, it uh, translates from uh, Yeshua to Jesus, uh, which the name means um, Jesus is salvation. So, uh, but I have to make note that Acts 4.12, it is not the pronunciation of syllables and vibrations of our vocal cords that that saves us, but it is this Jesus that Peter describes, who is uh, the the you know God in the flesh and, and the the Son of God that was the the sacrifice and the atonement for sins. It is this Jesus who whereby we are saved by. So it's not you know the Jesus that Simon was the son of, but it is this Jesus. So that the as far as Acts four twelve using that to attack this variant, uh, it doesn't hold much weight. So the conclusion I wanted to make is uh, I can't think of any good reason for such a late addition because if you study the character of the manuscript, uh, it is a faithful scribe copying in the, throughout the rest of uh, Matthew um, and in the other books. Uh, early scribes uh, could have possibly re removed it thinking it was an impious mistake or just rather um, it had the trigger the same reaction that Origen did. But as it stands, I defend this reading because of one, I think it adds uh, a narrative to the story stating that they chose the wrong Jesus, uh, but also because I can understand why scribes would struggle it, uh, with it in early on transmission. Nick, thanks for letting me know. All right. So, that sucks. I feel like I was doing good. Now, I'm going to have to redo it all. Sound like an idiot. All right. Here's what we've got. First John 5, 7. This is what I'm supporting and saying through the study of textual criticism and the, the different witnesses that we have to attest to First John 5, 7. The question remains, should it be in the Bible? Is it canon? Is it something that you can stand without a doubt and say, this is the word of God? First John 5, verse 7. Uh, this is the verse that says, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. That is what is in question. These three are one. Uh, when we talk about the Trinity uh, as Reformed or non-Reformed, the Trinity is something that both of us would believe in. Uh, we use this as a verse. Now, I don't know if you specifically could use this, not you specifically, Nate, but Reformed folk in general, or especially pastors who hold to the critical text who would say that the critical text is the text that we should use because the critical text would say this is not actually a biblical text. It shouldn't be in there. They would also say that with Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, the last uh, few verses of the book of Mark, which give you uh, the Great Commission uh, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, and I'd say those two doctrines are extremely important to any, any Christian. Uh, then you've got the woman caught in adultery, John chapter 7, verse 53 through 8, 11. And uh, these things shouldn't be in the Bible, therefore we're not going to preach it. 
I would say this is the greatest verse in the entire Bible on the Trinity, and the witnesses are astronomical. All right, the three that bear record or witness in heaven is the oneness doctrine, which the false critical text would say that Jesus is the Father or vice versa, and therefore we have to get rid of this verse because they are not all one. The Trinity is 100% true. The Trinity is three persons bear record in heaven as the heavenly witness in this verse. These three are one, one God. The earthly witness is listed a little later, uh, but this verse is not found in the majority of Greek manuscripts, and therefore it is found in a minority. It's found in 10 total out of 500 that actually contain 1 John chapter 5, and the text behind it would be number 629, 14th century, 61, 16th century, 918, 16th century, 2473, 17th century, 2318, 18th century, in the margins of the 221, 10th century, 635, 11th century, 88, 12th century, 429, 14th century, and 636, 15th century. Now, what do we use to justify, as traditional text advocates, that 1 John 5, 7 should say, these three are one, all right? 1 John 5, 7 can be traced all the way back to the 2nd uh, century. If you look at the Waldensian church translation from the Old Italic, uh, they actually trace that back, and you can see them as quoting it, uh, these three are one. In the 7th century, there's 12 Old Latin manuscripts at least contain the passage. 8th century, there's at least 21 Old Latin. 9th century, there's at least 189. Uh, so here's what you've got. The book of First John was probably written somewhere around between 60 and 90 AD, probably closer to, um, probably closer to, uh, if I had to guess, I'd say somewhere close to 80 AD. So it was relatively uh, a late book. It was relatively tough to recognize what, what should and shouldn't be, and they were still making those decisions. But what I would say is the Christian church who is tracing this back, uh, comparing the traditional text and the early uh, witnesses, whether internal, external, early church fathers, lectionaries, um, versions, uh, whatever it is that you're looking at, the witnesses are overwhelmingly in favor that this should be in the text and that it was, in fact, in the text. All right, so here we go. Over 6,000 Latin manuscripts remained unexamined to this day. 6,000. Uh, out, of, out of however many there are, I think they say that they've got somewhere around 10,000. Uh, Latin manuscripts, but 6,000 of them haven't even been touched. But the reference to 1 John 5, 7, it refers and it goes back all the way to 200 AD. Tertullian, he actually quotes this uh, verse in his Apology Against Praxis. Cyprian of Carthage in 250 AD, around 250 AD, could have been prior to that. That's a very generous dating there. He says, and again, the Father, Son, Holy Ghost, it is written, and the three are one. In his On the Lapsed, uh, On the Novations, he said that. Now, Cyprian, he's quoting this and he says, it is written, and the three are one. He lived from 180 to 250. It very well could be prior to 250. So the scriptures that he had at that time, they absolutely, without a doubt, contained the verse in, the, in question. So there's at least 100 years before anything we have today in the Greek copies. If it wasn't part of the Holy Scripture, where did he get it? That's the question. You have probably the earliest witness in Cyprian um, and Tertullian. Then you've got in 350 AD, Priscillian refers to it, Corpus Scriptorium, Ecclesiastorium, Latinorium, Acadium, uh, Litinorium, he refers to it in that on page uh, 27, page 6, chapter 27, page 6. He says, there are three which give testimony on the earth, the water, the flesh, and blood. These three are in one, and there are three which give testimony in heaven. Here's the heavenly witness again. Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, these three are one in Christ. Priscilla quoted that in 388 AD. I've got a ton more on this, obviously, guys, but it looks like my time's up. I'm going to turn it over to you, Nate. I'm sorry, guys. I apologize. I uh, didn't have my dumb mic on.
I'm an idiot. I'm sorry. Nate, you're up. So it was mentioned earlier and asked, uh, do I use this to defend uh, the Trinity? And the answer is, it is not where I go because I do not defend the Trinity from a single verse. The Trinity is the conclusion one comes to when they take the nature of God in three persons, the nature of the Father, the nature of the Son, and the nature of the Holy Spirit, and come to a conclusion as to who the nature of the one true God is. So, no, I, I do not feel the need to, when I am talking to a Jehovah's Witness or whoever, to go here. Because I know that the first thing that I cited, it's automatically going to be met with the controversy that this verse had most significantly uh, in the Reformation era. Now, Josh did mention the Greek witnesses, and it is true that it is not found in any Greek text until the 14th century, which I believe the earliest one was Codex Ravenius. Um and also, um, he mentioned uh, Cyprian. So I wanted to read the quote from Cyprian in context um, about what he was saying. Uh, I just realized I didn't start my watch. Um, I'll just take about 30 seconds off. Uh, so he's, it's, it's in um, De Unite talking about the unity of the church. And he says, uh, he who breaks the peace and concord of Christ does so in opposition to Christ. He who gathers elsewhere then in the church scatters the church of Christ. The Lord says, I and the Father are one. And again, it is written of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then here's a citation. And these three are one. Now that citation there, and these three are one, is found in all of the Greek witnesses that we have of 1 John. And that is the end of verse 8, which is uh, Isto and Isen. That, that, that's how it reads in the Greek. And that is also found in the ESV and NESB, and in the, in these three agree in one, and these three are one. Uh, the Greek is the same. But however, you can see that a Cyprian citation here says the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's not the citation of 1 John 5, 7. The citation is, is uh, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. In Greek, it's the Logos. It's not a huios, it's Logos. So Cyprian is not the only one to have interpreted First uh, John five seven in a Trinitarian way. Uh, same thing with uh, Tertullian. Uh, I was able to find the witness from uh, KJVToday.com. He also um, mentioned um, thus the connection of the Father in the Son and of the Son in the Paraclete, which is the the, the Comforter, produces three coherent persons, one from the other. Which three are one? Um, Again, there's not a direct citation of 1 John 5, 7, but you can also see this with Augustine's um, allusion to it. But it's evident that a lot of these early church fathers interpreted this passage in, the, in a Trinitarian manner. I also want to make note of the fact that, um, well, how did this reading come, come down? Uh, the current consensus is that uh, there, there is a Latin commentary, um, I think it was produced in, in the 300s, that uh, it has in the margins um, giving a Trinitarian uh, illusion of the, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and, and these three uh, agree. And one thing we see down through the ages uh, with scribes is, is that instead of getting rid of these um, so, um, notes in the margins, sometimes they would put them in the text so that they wouldn't disappear, and then 
the next scribe that came along would then copy that, and then that's how it got copied down to the ages. One thing I, I want to make mention of is that um, if uh, this text has uh, the, the solid evidence um, behind it that Josh listed out here with all the, the different Latin witnesses and stuff, then why was it not included in Erasmus's first two editions? Now, there is some debate as to whether Erasmus, um, if he issued the challenge, like, if you find me one Greek manuscript, I'll put it in my third edition. There's, there's some controversy on that, but the uh, an, uh, in irrefutable fact is that it was not found in his first two editions, um, but it was found in his third through fifth editions. So it's always, there's always been a debate as to the authenticity of it, but I must make note that the doctrine of the Trinity does not stand or fall with this verse. I do not defend the Trinity from the comma Johannium. I defend the Trinity from the whole council of scripture. And there are other Trinitarian texts such as Matthew 28, 19, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, 1 Peter 1, 1 through 2. There's many places I could go where I can lay out my doctrine of the Trinity, uh, but 1 John 5, 7 is not one of them. So the reason why I do not believe that uh, the comma is authentic is because it does not it does not show up until in any Greek text until the fourteenth century, and many of these are in the margins. And what I mentioned earlier about Matthew twenty seven sixteen, the the difference I made was that the the reading I defended there was from internal evidence and not external evidence. But I did it from looking at uh, the motivation by the scribes. But here, this is a very important doctrine of the Trinity that was not used in the debate against the Arians at the Council of Nicaea or the Council of Chalcedon, which would have, if it was uh, what John originally penned, would have been a, a hammer text, I would say. But my position is that I don't defend the Trinity from this verse. I defend the Trinity from the whole Council of Scripture, and I, I do not believe that the comma is authentic. Sweet. Okay. So are you, gosh, man, it's so hard for me to not uh, respond back to these things. That's the toughest part. So we'll keep on trucking here and do the best we can with okay. it. You are up next uh, from the way that I understand you've, you're, you've got your variant that you're going to present and then I'll rebut that, right? Yes. Um, this next one, if you want to turn there, is Romans 13.9. Okay, I'll go ahead and start. Uh, so Romans 13.9 uh, differs in one spot where uh, uh, the King James Version, as it reads, is, let me pull it out here. Um, For this, uh, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, that thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. Uh, and if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in the saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Thou shalt not bear false witness is, is not found in the modern translations. And sometimes what you will hear is you'll hear people say that these modern, transla these modern translators took it out so that they could remove their guilt uh, to pervert the word of God and not have any text to uh, condemn them for what they're doing. But if that was the case, why not also remove the guilts entirely from Matthew 19, Deuteronomy 5, and Exodus 20? Why not remove those as well? And sometimes you'll be met with an answer of, well, Satan isn't obvious like that. He mixes truth with lies. But let's just, um, I want to get to the facts, and then 
see what conclusions we come to. So in examining this variant, I, I feel it's first important that we look at the context. So in the verses prior to this, we see um, it says, uh, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And then owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves has fulfilled the law. Now the context of Romans 13 is about a submission to the authorities because they're in place by God. It's about being a godly citizen so that you can be a light to others. God has set these authorities in place, and uh, they do not bear the sword in vain because God in his sovereignty uses human governments to carry out his wrath on evildoers and such. Uh, but the, the servant that does good does not need to fear uh, this. So therefore, we are called to be uh, responsible, uh, God-honoring citizens. So we see the teaching of Jesus here with render to Caesar what is Caesar, render to God what is God's. Uh, but we get to uh, verse 9, and we see that uh, the modern translations do not have thou shalt bear false witness. So looking at the textual evidence... Uh, we see here that uh, thou shalt not bear false witness is in uh, Codex Peripherianus. It is the original of Sinaiticus. Uh, it's also found in um, some minuscules such as um, 04A, 81, 104, 365. Um, there's some, it's in the Clementine Vulgate. Uh, that was a medieval Vulgate, uh, the Syriac Harclensian and some Boharic manuscripts. That is the, the witnesses to you shall not bear false witness or pseudo martyricize. Uh, now, the witnesses that do not contain this are the earliest text we have of Paul, which is P46, uh, Codex Alexandrinus, Codex Vaticanus, Codex Bese, Codex Claromontanus, uh, some other 5th um, and 6th century codices, um, 1175, 1241, 1739. Um, and I have not looked up these church fathers, but apparently uh, Clement of... Um, I don't know if that's Clement of Rome or Clement of Alexandria. And then there's Ambrosiaster. So the witnesses are rather split on the issue. So with that being said, then, it goes into internal evidence, which uh, what is Paul getting out here? Is he trying to make a comprehensive list of commandments to his people? Um, what, what was the context of what Paul was getting at here? So what we see here is that... Um, he says, love has fulfilled the law, and then he gives a general list of commandments here. So he, and what, first off, you'll notice that he doesn't say, uh, uh, honor your father and mother. He also doesn't mention commandments one through four. So it's evident that Paul was not trying to make a comprehensive list of commandments because he ends his statement with, and if there be any other commandment, which is summed up in, from Leviticus, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So then what the charge will uh, come about would be, um, are the commandments in order, and does the modern translation throw this order off? Well, if you read it, it says, for this, uh, you sh thou shalt not commit adultery, number seven. Thou shalt not kill, number eight. Thou shalt not steal, number nine. Um, and then, or excuse me, thou shalt not bear false witness, number nine. And then thou shalt not covet, number ten. So it goes seven, six, eight, nine, ten. So even if um, you shall not bear false witness is not in there, it does not throw the order off because uh, they're not listed in order. So Paul was not listing the commandments in order. Now, I ran out of time, but basically what I was, you mind if I finish my last sentence here? Have at so, it. So the way I believe that uh, the way this reading originated is that a scribe is copying along and he sees these commandments listed and then he's like, 
I know what comes after um, thou shalt not um, thou shalt not steal, which is uh, thou shalt not bear false witness. And so it could be easily seen how that uh, manuscript had that reading and it was copied along. And then on the flip side of that, which you can address is uh, what would be the motivation for all these witnesses not having this? So. Okay. Uh, let me switch the camera over to me here uh, and I'll get the timer up. Looks like I might be about out of battery on that camera. So I'll have to switch over. That's okay. Cool. Let's go ahead and get started. So I think that the main point that you're arguing is, is, um, it, it, it is not founded on what does the scripture say? What was actually preserved there? It's a matter of what you're, you're kind of comparing scripture with scripture and you're trying to decide, well, is the general idea conveyed in other portions of the scripture? That's not the argument. The argument is not, did Jesus quote it in Matthew 19? It's not, uh, what did Jesus quote in Matthew 19? And did that match up with what Exodus 20 says in the Ten Commandments? That's not the question. The question was, what did Paul actually write? That's the question. Uh, uh, um, I, I think that it, what, it, what it comes down to is ultimately what was recorded. So we look at the external evidence first, and then we look at the internal evidence, and I'm going to look at the affected teaching. I'll sum it up in four minutes, okay? There's not a ton of external evidence, either for your side or for mine. Uh, the manuscripts which would agree with the TR for this verse would be the Byzantine text that uh, the earliest copy they have dates back to around the 450, 480 AD mark. Then you've got Sinaiticus actually agrees with the TR here. And, uh, then you've got the 9th century P25 that agrees with the TR. Uh, then you've got 8th and 9th centuries for Psi 44. Um, those are the only manuscripts that even support this verse at all. Um, in regard to that rendering that we've got that says thou shalt not bear false, false witness. So uh, the corrupted manuscripts that I would call the corrupted manuscripts that would support the critical text side would be Alexandrinus, 5th century, Vaticanus, 4th century, Claremontanus, 6th century. Then you've got the 9th century L20, then minuscule 33 for the 9th century. So you've got five witnesses. We've got four witnesses. Uh, but then you've got to look at a few other things um, that would that would uh, support this as well. I've got three minutes. I'm going to talk about a few of the translational versions, what they say, and see who I line up with and who you line up with. The King James, it lines up with the Geneva Bible and the, the Tyndale Bible uh, from what I've got in here is my uh, different versions that I've used to compare. Um, Tyndale is actually kind of fun to read. It says, um, if there be any other commandment, they are are all comprehended in this saying, love thy neighbor as thyself, thou shalt not desire, and so forth. If there, uh, He says, thou shalt not bear false, false witness, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill. Kill is spelled K-Y-L-L. -L. Um, so the Geneva Bible 1587 says, thou shalt not kill, K-I-L. Uh, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, uh, and thou shalt not covet. If, if there be any other com co um, commandment, and then they sum it up in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. 1611, thou shalt not kill, commit adultery, steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. Obviously, the King James would support that. Here's That's who I'm in line with as far as translations go. Here's who you're in line with. The CSB says, don't commit uh, adultery, murder, steal, covet, any other, and if and any other commandment are summed up by this commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. The New World Translation, a Jehovah's Witness, they say this, For the law code, in parentheses, you must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not steal, you must not covet, 
And whatever other commandment there is is summed up in this word, namely, you must love your neighbor as yourself. The Roman Catholic NAB, uh, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in the same, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, then let me go over down here into basically, there's because I mean, there's not a whole lot of external support, uh, the only internal support that you've got is it goes into um, the majority text translational renderings, whether, and not the majority, you've got the um, minority text general um, texts that um, are actually translated into the Greek. The earliest goes back to 1805 with Griesbach. I don't think that I would want to represent be represented by Griesbach. I don't think you would either. I don't think you do unless you um, uh, affirm everything that he says about limited atonement. I think that's a pretty tough witness to take seriously. Here's the teachings affected. He says this is another one of those deletions which no uh, reason is given as to why it was removed. However, the name origin, it appears beside the commentary in the UBS fourth edition of the Greek. Or origin, here's a few things about him. He was a pagan. He was not a Christian. He had much to do with the corruption of the Antiochian manuscripts. In Romans 13.9, it's a borrowed quotation from the episode of which the young ruler from Matthew 19.19, when Jesus told him he would, have a, uh, he would have to keep the commandments to inherit eternal life. The commandments Jesus gave that ruler were the part of the Decalogue that deals with the other. Uh, the first four deal with the relationship to God, the other six deal with the relationship to each other. Uh, let's sum it up this way. Why would he leave out thou shalt not bear false witness? That's another mystery. They keep the other ones in and they delete this one, which makes absolutely no sense. I have already stated I have no reason to have given why this was done. I really don't know. There's not a whole lot of external witnesses. There's not a whole lot of internal witnesses. The earliest we can see is it starts with um, origin. I just don't understand that one. So I'll turn it over to you. Uh, actually, I get to do mine, don't I? Right. My next one, so we've just got uh, two more each. We'll try to fly through these as quickly as possible. Um, the next one that I've got is Mark 16. Uh, if I can find my notes here. Mark 16, verses 9 through 20. And all right. Let me get my timer up. We're good to go. Five minutes exactly. So here's what we've got, guys. Um, my textual variant is absolutely supported by the TR. It's absolutely supported by the traditional text. It's absolutely supported by history. It's something that can be traceable and should be preached in your church. If your pastor feels that it should not be preached in your church, you should get a new pastor. Here's the reason why. Um, out of the 620 manuscripts that we've got that actually do contain uh, Mark 16, uh, 618 of those uh, manuscripts do contain verses 9 through 20. The portion that is in question is contained in 618 out of 620 manuscripts. If we let our country be run as the textual critics run the Bible within the preservation of the Word of God, none of us would have any rights. It would be amazing to see that two people out of every 620 could tell you what you're going to do in your life, especially if you're considering uh, what you should pay. Should you pay your fair share and we get to decide what your fair share is? I say that when it comes to the textual side of the Bible, the Bible and the variants that uh, we're discussing specifically in Mark 16, 9 through 20 is absolutely a slam dunk 
to say that it should be, and it was in there, and it is the inspired uh, Word of God that was preserved throughout history under the doctrine of preservation. And if if uh, Nate disagrees with this, I would be absolutely amazed. I'm not sure that he does. I will be amazed if he does disagree with this one. I'm I I would highly doubt that he does, but if he does, I will. I'll be shocked. So now Jesus, he was risen early on the first day of the week. He appears to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. Uh, obviously, there's a narration of what happens. They go forth, they preach everywhere. The Lord is working with them. They're confirming the world, following signs. You've got the Great Commission, and you've got the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If there is no other reason to preserve this text, it's just for those two doctrines. The preservation of the resurrected Jesus Christ. Guys, why would Bart Ehrman want to get rid of this? Why would James White agree with Bart Ehrman and want to get rid of this? Why would Daniel Wallace want to get rid of this? Because without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you don't have Christianity. You need the resurrected Jesus to be saved. If you don't have that, you don't have nothing. And Paul even tells you, except Christ be risen, though what we've believed in is in vain. So Christ has got to be risen. If you get rid of this witness, you might as well throw the entire Bible out. You might as well throw your entire Christianity out. Go and join Buddhism and try to elevate yourself to Brahman. I don't know what the answer is. If you don't agree with this, you don't agree with anything in the Bible. That's as simple as it is. Uh, if your pastor doesn't agree with it, he's a moron. I'm sorry. I can say that. I'm not a pastor. I'm just a normal guy like you and me. Nate, you can call me a moron if you think that I think that this should be in there because I do. If I'm a moron for believing that, I will gladly hold that as a banner of truth that I'm a moron because I think Mark 16, 9 through 20 should be in there. If your company, all right, let's see here. Here's the footnotes. I, I want to look into the external and the internal. Where's it found? It's in the Byzantine text, and it's it's in fifth uh, century Alexandrinus, uh, the Ephraim re, uh, rescriptus, and it's in um, uh, Codex C4. It's in Codex D K Q W X. It's in everything. But to I, I don't even I can't even read them. There's so much that is in there. Where's it omitted? It's in Sinaiticus. Now, by the way, earlier you said that Sinaiticus was not found in a trash can. Uh, Tischendorf, by the way, when he was traveling through there at St. Catherine's Monastery, he did find it in a, cast, a cast, uh, trash can. Check out the book called Secrets on Mount Sinai. This guy does the most scholarly work that I've ever seen when it comes to Codex Sinaiticus and where it came from. He went to that guy who was burning it and told him, no, you can't do this. We've got to keep it. He had to appeal to these guys for years to get them, one, to preserve it so and ask them where they got it. They When they did take him back and show him in the room that they found these, it was wrapped in red velvet, and they handed it to him because they were using it to preserve the text so they could burn it. It's amazing to me that somebody would take that and say, we need this. Look how amazing it is. This guy, Tischendorf, who hated the Bible, he loved history. Let's not talk about Tischendorf anymore. It's in Vaticanus as well. He tried to, He had a lot to do with Vaticanus as well. It's in Minuscule 304 in the 12th century. It's in Minuscule 2386 in the 11th century. Those are who admit it, and that's who's telling you it shouldn't be in the Bible. The early patristic evidence would be Justin Martyr, 2nd century, Irenaeus, Tertullian, 2nd century. The 3rd century would be Hippolytus, uh, Vicentius of the 7th Council of Carthage, 258. Um, the 4th century, Eusebius, Martian, Magnus, Aphrodites, uh, Didmin, uh, Didymium, the Syriac Acts of the Apostles, Apostles, not Apostles. Uh, then you've got 4th century, Eusebius, then Ambrose, Chrysostom. Uh, Jerome, Augustine, 5th century Leo, and blah, blah, blah. Here's the, let me give you a few. Um, I've got, I'm out of time, but 2nd century, you've got the old Latin Peshitta, Syriac, 
expectations. This is a slam dunk. I can't even begin to imagine that you would question this, but Nate, I'm turning it over to you for your rebuttal. So I, I agree with Josh. The um, the evidence for the reading is overwhelming. In fact, uh, he was right when he said that um, it, it's not found in Sinaiticus. It's not found in Vaticanus. Um, and there's uh, one other. Um, it's 604. I don't know if that was. It was a cursive. Oh, 304. Right? Um, a, a medieval cursive. Uh, but as, as far as that goes, that that's. Um, that's that's it as far as uh, the ones that do not contain it. But of those that contain it, one thing that was not addressed was there were um, many uh, cursives, um, such as uh, Family 1, 205, uh, 579, 1602, um, Codex L. They had symbols on them, um, or colophons, which uh, would indicate that this... Um, this reading had some questionable uh, authenticity. And uh, one other thing I wanted to bring up was um, in Codex Washingtonianus, um, it ends at verse 14. It doesn't end at verse 20. Uh, and this has been called the Freer, the Freer uh, Legion. And this is how Mark 16 uh, ends in this manuscript. So it, uh, after verse 13, it reads, they reported briefly to those around Peter all that they had been commanded. After these things, Jesus himself sent out through them from the east to the west, the holy and imperishable preaching of eternal salvation. Amen. So there's uh, several manuscripts uh, that end at verse 14, and um, there's witnesses that obviously continue through to verse 20. So that brings up the question as to why were there different endings in that manner? Now, I, I agree that if Mark 16, 9 through 20 is not original. Mark 16, 8 ends on a cliffhanger. Um, and there's been no limit to the amount of debate as to where Mark uh, ended. I, I do not have... It's one of those that I didn't take a lot of time to, to look at in depth. It's, it's, no, it's certainly not an easy one to ascertain, and that's why uh, translations have this um, in the Bibles with the brackets. Because it is, um, what, why do all these witnesses have the marks state um, questioning their authenticity? Why do some of these witnesses end in verse 14 instead of all the way through verse 20? And then there's also the content contained within it. Yes, you do have um, the gospel commission and such, but then you also have um, verse 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Now, that, that has obviously created a lot of controversy um, amongst um, regenerational Baptists. Um, believers. Um, and then there's also um, what we would call them the snake handlers. Verse 17 has been used to state that uh, these these signs that Jesus speaking to the apostles, they will accompany us as well. So we can pick up poisonous serpents with our hands and drink poison and we will live. Um, some of these uh, verses here at the in the longer ending of Mark is not um, Mark in, in language throughout the rest of uh, his uh, gospel. So while I, I don't have a conclusion on the matter, I just simply want to lay out the facts that uh, there is some difficulties in examining this text. Um, but to say that we don't have the resurrection or that 
the Great Commission is overthrown. It very clearly states in, in verse 7, or verse 6, sorry, that uh, the angel st states that um, he who was crucified, he's risen. He's not here. Uh, and then they go um, and see the place where they, they laid him. Um, and then, of course, it's the, the ending, which has generated no small controversy, states that uh, they, they went out uh, with fear and were astonished. Some have stated that um, they've hypothesized that Mark ended his gospel there to just state, um, so what will you now do with Jesus? He's risen. He's no longer here. Uh, and then also we must note that Mark is not the only witness to the resurrection. We do not defend the resurrection from just a proof text, but through the whole council of scripture. Uh, so um, as far as your concern with me, Josh, I, I do recognize that uh, the textual evidence for it uh, for the inclusion of the longer ending of Mark um, is extremely, extremely weighty. But I, I would also just, because we do not have to be afraid of the facts, we have to wrestle with all these witnesses had different endings, which brings in question its authenticity um, and the different readings thereof and um, the language, which is not marked in some places. Cool. Um, so we're at two hours right now. Do you want to wrap <laughs> it up, maybe do it another time and hit these other um, I, I think, yeah, I think we've gone, cool. we've, we've definitely, uh, there, we were, the last two we were going to do was, uh, Ephesians 5, 9 and, um, the woman, uh, the pericope adultery, but, um, so let's do those another time. Let's do our conclusion. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll go, I'll go first and give you the last word. Uh, we'll try to keep it around five minutes. I'm going to go shorter than five minutes because my wife is getting on me. I've got to, I've we're supposed to go out on a date so okay all right let me put up five minutes here and that's close enough all right so in closing guys this is this is my position it hasn't changed um ultimately what what we're deciding is what and what isn't canon um canon has got to be settled it canon isn't simply the books in the bible it's the words in the in the books and if you can't decide and come to the conclusion that the words in the Bible is settled, then you can't come to the conclusion that the books in the Bible is settled. Um, that's the whole point that I'm making. You might as well accept uh, the gospel of Judas, um, which is no gospel at all. Um, you might as well you might as well put in the book of Enoch in there and uh, and say that there's a extreme. You've got guys who would say there's a, a significant amount of weight and support behind this that it, it was in fact canon and it was suppressed truth uh, in the Old Testament and that it should be in there today. So, um, in fact, you've got a great movement of guys who believe it should be in there and they're trying to make it, trying to get it in there. Uh, maybe someday it will. Uh, my position is it's settled. There's no question about it. There is no further revelation from God other than what is written. Uh, it's a more sure word of prophecy, and if you don't have trust, if you don't have faith that what you're holding in your hands is, in fact, the Word of God, you should examine it. If you've never considered some of these things, if you've never looked at uh, some of the differences between other Bible versions, specifically the English versions, um, I would say that there is absolutely significant weight and support um, that the King James Bible is the English version that you should be using. Um, the, I think that that's the entire point of uh, what why I'm having this debate. Uh, with Nate. I like Nate a lot. I do disagree with him on a lot of things. And as he stated earlier, it's an in-house debate. I believe he's saved. I believe he loves the Lord. I believe that he's completely wrong on this this issue as the probably the majority of Christianity is. Uh, but, you know, that's fine by me. I don't mind being in the minority. I don't mind it being an unpopular thing to teach and preach. I don't mind that. I'm not a pastor. I'm not anything special. I'm just a normal guy. 
uh, like you, Nate, I, I appreciate your service for the military. I think ultimately what it comes down to is this, guys. Um, you know, as Christians, we've got to be able to test it and try it and see if, if what we're calling a textual variant and questioning whether it should be or shouldn't be in the Bible um, is in fact canon. We need to have a system to examine it. Uh, Dean Martin laid out those, not Dean Martin, Dean Perkin laid out those seven, that seven-point system. I think that it's a very good system to examine not only internal but external web evidence as well. And if we can consider those things, I think the witness in your heart can also tell you uh, that Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus. Jesus was not a, the only begotten God, um, that he was not the only son of God either, that he's the only begotten son, and that whosoever should call on his name should not perish but have everlasting life. And my friends, if you're not saved here today and you're listening to this, uh, in John chapter 20, Jesus himself says that in these scriptures, you do believe that you have ever, eternal life. You're basing your soul off of those scriptures. If you can't have faith in what's written, you have no idea where you're going when you die. And I don't have any problem saying that. If you doubt that, uh, that, that the word of God is what it claims to be, then you could possibly doubt your salvation uh, because you doubt the scriptures. And uh, I, maybe that sounds rough to some of you. That's where I stand. That's what I believe, man. I, I, I have faith. I have faith that uh, not only do I understand that I have eternal life through what the scriptures wrote about Jesus Christ in his resurrection, but I don't have salvation without the resurrection. And if Mark gets rid of it, you don't have a gospel. If you don't have the resurrection, you don't have the gospel. Mark was the first book written out of the four gospels. You need the resurrection to be saved. And uh, I'll leave it with you on that, guys. You can know that you have eternal life through what's written. And that's written about Jesus Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection. His death, he died for all. He was his burial. He was buried for all in his resurrection. He rose for all. That's everyone, every single individual. You don't have to have any question about it. Love you all. I'm going to turn this over to Nate. He's going to close it out, and we'll go from there. Okay. So I just go ahead? Yes, sir. Yep, you okay. got it. All right. So uh, first, I just wanted to say um, thank you, Josh, for letting me have letting me be on your show. Um, this is the first debate that I have ever had um, in a public forum like this. Um, and again, I, you know, whether it's the the comments after is who won, who lost. Um, that that was not my ultimate goal in this. It, uh, my goal in uh, debating Josh on this was not to win. Was not to flex my knowledge. It was not to do that, but it was just simply to, to lay out the facts that uh, we as Christians have to, to deal with. But uh, the thing that I wanted to make clear was that um, while some, like Bart Ehrman, came to the conclusion that God could not have possibly preserved his word, uh, I, and I'm not saying that I'm an authority on this, but I came to the conclusion after studying textual criticism that I do not doubt uh, that God has indeed preserved down his word down through the ages. Now, we may uh, vary as to how he did that because it was not a photocopied text that just fell out of heaven. And and I'm not saying that Josh takes his position. Uh, there's some that state the, the King James Version fell out of heaven 1611. Um, but what I'm stating is that over 1,500 years of transmissional history, uh, 5,800 manuscripts in Greek— and all that we have to do is 0.5% of, of meaningful textual critical work. That is astounding to me. And we we didn't get a chance to do the second one, but the only 
variants in the Greek New Testament that are longer than one verse is Mark 16, 9 through 20 and John 7, 53 through 8, 11. And as I said earlier, all of, there's numerous swaths of scripture that came down to us without a single variant. Uh, and those that in in 99% of the variants, uh, the 4,000 variations are nonsense variants. So, yes, I do believe that we can have confidence in what God uh, preserved down to us. Now, in regards to translations, yes, there are really bad translations out there. Uh, I, I'm not one to defend paraphrases. I'm not one to defend uh, New Living Translations because I, I am under the conviction that uh, a translation should be translated on the level that its source document uh, was laid out. And the source text of our New Testament was written in the common Greek, and it was a language that God used to communicate his truths to his people um, to the church in every age. And I do not believe for a second that we have ever lost those words. Um, and as I close out here, obviously, uh, yes, there is a call to <laughs> what since we only have to do meaningful textual critical work on less than half a percent of the text. What does that tell us about the word that has been preserved down to us? It's evident that God in his sovereign care has preserved his word in every age and every generation, though they've had to deal with textual criticism with Irenaeus knowing of manuscripts that read uh, 616 instead of 666, and um, Origen knowing um, alternative readings of Matthew, and then in the Reformation, uh, Erasmus having to engage with the Comma Johannium, uh, the King James translators seeing basis text with Revelation 16.5. Every church in, in the generations has had to wrestle with that, but the... The final, the finality and the conclusion of it all still stands. I believe that there is no doubt that God has preserved his word down through the ages. I just disagree as to the mechanisms that he used. And once again, I state that it was not a photocopied text, but it was a text copied by scribes down through the ages, facing persecution, facing cold. Uh, one manuscript we have in Armenian, uh, when the scribe finished it, he stated that uh, the fire went out in his uh, room, uh, the ink froze, and his hand was shaking so bad uh, that he had to go back and fix some mistakes he made. But still, the fact that the text that came down to us is that we have to engage only 0.5% critically is amazing to me. So I do not believe that scholarship needs to cease. I believe that we should constantly be um, engaging the text as they stand in a scholarly manner. Uh, because uh, scholarly and historical work of the Bible, I, I do not believe is the work of the devil. Uh, so that's where I stand. I, it may have not been the most coherent defense, but in the end, I hope that everyone watching this got something out of it and um, that, that they can continue to go forth and, and study the Word of God. Hey, you did a great job, Nate, for your first debate. Awesome. Guys, if I could get you to give a round of applause, we can't hear you clapping, but that was good, man. That was a lot of fun, too. So, hey, I really appreciate you coming on. I, uh, maybe we can do this in the future. This was a, it's a good time. It challenges me. Um, something that I wrote to, I can't remember his name, whoever wrote in uh, in the live chat. 
Um, I, I just responded back, Nate, I really appreciate you. You challenge me, you sharpen me, you bring things up uh, on the textual side that I may not have seen before uh, that, that helped me in my growth and spiritual walk with the Lord. So I appreciate that. One of my best friends in the faith holds the exact same position you do. I still love him. Uh, Nate, I love you. I think that you're a good guy. Um, it's, it's good to have brothers like you in the Lord who we can challenge each other. So, um, and Absolutely. with that said, I'll give you the last word. I'm going to close it out after, um, I'm going to go to my closing scene after you've, after you close it from there. Well, I was just, I was just going to say again, thank you for having me on. I, I appreciate that you uh, don't condemn me to the flames. I don't condemn you either as well. This was obviously an in-house discussion. Um, we do have some differences, but I, I do believe in the end, we yeah. do believe in the same Jesus, and, and we do believe that the gospel is the power of God to save. Amen. Um, and um, with that said, um, I do hope that you have a Merry Christmas. I don't know when we'll engage again, but maybe next time we could have a maybe a dialogue. Doesn't have to be a debate. We could discuss. Um, we, we could discuss um, the, the doctrine of inerrancy as yeah. stated in the Bible. Yeah. Um, could be a topic of future discussion. Um, but I appreciate you having me on again. This was my first go at this. Um, some things may have been muddled and incoherent, maybe. But I just hope that in the finality of all things that. I am not trying to shake people's faith in God's word. I want people to go and know how the Bible came to them because the, God's word is under attack more than ever. And we cannot just sit there and, and just use circular reasoning to witness to people. Not only does it strengthen your faith when you study how the Bible is transmitted to us, but it also gives you a better apologetic when you're when someone's in a coffee shop and they just you know state that, oh, Constantine— gathered all the manuscripts and made changes. No, we didn't. And we can prove that from history or just any, like Dan Brown's book, just all the stuff that was mentioned in there and even refuting some of the claims Bart Ehrman has made. If you study history, you can have answers to all this. I'm not saying I have all the answers, but in the end, I hope that I just was able to get the listeners, you, you the audience out there to go deeper, dig deeper, and as always, just stay stay the course, fight the good fight, and preach the word. Amen. Cool. Thank you for that. Stay on. I'm going to go to my closing scene here and uh, wrap it up. Thanks again, guys. This was a lot of fun. I think that uh, having Nate on again would be a great thing to do. If you agree, either like the video, share the video, uh, let us know on Twitter, on Facebook, on YouTube. Um, what, share it with your friends, man. I think we're trying to open a dialogue here that uh, is something that um, could be bigger than just the echo chamber that maybe I'm in or you're in. It's to open the door of communication to talk with people that may not think the same thing that you do, uh, but still love the Lord. And uh, I think Nate does. I think he did a really good job, especially for his very first time. He's probably better spoken than I am. And uh, that's fine. I think that he's a good guy and he's in the military serving serving God and country. So that's awesome. Guys, textual variance, textual criticism, it's something that every translation that uh, you you can ever read, um, it comes from a Greek text that uses textual criticism. I don't even care if you're talking about the TR. They use textual criticism. It's an, it's an eclectic text. They considered uh, external and internal witnesses. And uh, there's a lot to talk about there. It's a great, fun topic, and ultimately something that should strengthen you in your faith and growth and 
and walk with the Lord. So if you have any questions, you agree or disagree, I'm open for discussion. I'm not one that's big on name calling or anything like that. I can get passionate, but you know what? I try to stay civil. Uh, just call me out and tell me and I'm being a jerk. Talk to me like your brother. Uh, that's what I think we are. So we're brothers in the Lord. I love you all. Have a good evening and God bless you. Merry Christmas, Josh. Hey, amen. Mer hey, Merry Christmas yeah. to you. So we can still yep. say that. So, hey, have, um, have a good rest. Have, have a good rest of your day. And uh, discussions open with me as well. You can put my Twitter uh, handle there in the bio. But oh, dude, yeah, I yeah. should have done that. What is your Twitter handle, by the way? Let me share it. I'll pull it up so you guys can see it. I know that I had it out earlier. Uh, where's my internet? So, um, sixteen eighty nine Wolverine. That's right. At 1689 Wolverine. Um, it's an anonymous account. And I think you have a personal one as well. But I don't want to go to my profile. So let's, uh, let's do that. Hey, guys, appreciate it. We'll catch up with you soon. Have a good night. And Merry Christmas to everybody. Yeah. Merry Christmas.